Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. Yesterday, we reached a significant milestone in our fight against coronavirus. This evening, I'm reporting that we've had an additional 59 new cases uh, in the last 24 hours. We didn't have any deaths notified to us. In fact, two were denotified. This is the first day since the 21st of March that there hasn't been a confirmed death in Ireland from COVID-19. The first death was confirmed here on the 11th of March, and since that day, 1,606 people have lost their lives to the virus. We all know people who are suffering and grieving at this time. Too many have died, and sadly more will die and get sick before this is over. The number of new cases here has fallen in recent weeks, but as we ease our way out of lockdown, we are at risk of a second wave. As movement restarts, then it's inevitable that transmission will also restart. And that means that there will be more cases. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. David Navarro, a professor of global health at Imperial College London and WHO special envoy on COVID-19. I think every country realises that lockdown is an abnormal situation, very destructive to the economy, very destructive to people's livelihoods, not good for people's mental health, not good for the domestic situation. It's bad. David spoke to me about the way in which we must learn to live alongside the virus in the weeks and months ahead. And we also hear about the realistic time frame for a vaccine. It will take, in my judgment, a minimum of 18 months for the necessary safety and efficacy tests to be done. If it can be raced ahead quicker, okay, that would be great. But please, no corners should be cut. Yesterday, you may know, was a bit of a red letter day in Ireland where for the first time since the 21st of March, we have recorded no deaths. Um, So it seems we're succeeding in in suppressing the virus here. But should we be trying to do more to crush the curve, in your view? This virus is particularly unpleasant because it's capable of spreading very fast if people are moving around in the normal way. So what's happened in lockdowns around the world is that the movement of the virus has been frozen. That's because the numbers of people who are in contact with each other each day has been greatly reduced. I doubt it will ever be completely uh, eradicated through this action because uh, the country of Ireland is connected to to the UK and you've got a border and it's going to be inevitable that people will come in with the virus who don't know they have it. Ditto, you have people coming in to your country by air or by sea. And so I don't want to suggest that it be possible to be completely free of the virus, but it will be possible to keep the number of new cases low and to prevent big outbreaks from building up again that have all the consequences that you've seen in the country in the last few weeks and months. Also yesterday, David, we heard a new warning from the WHO about a second peak in areas where COVID-19 is declining. What's your view on the impact of that second peak in Ireland and how should we be anticipating it? So I like to suggest that we have to be on the lookout for multiple new peaks, but they won't be big ones. If we're clever, we'll keep them small. So somebody with the virus turns up, for example, in a city in your country in uh, town, I mean Limerick, Um, what do you do? Well, the most important thing is to make sure that that person is found as quickly as possible, 
and is isolated straight away. And all those who they've been in contact with are isolated so that you prevent a case from turning into a cluster and a cluster from turning into a peak. It's that strategy of being able to prevent new peaks from emerging is the key to the future. And if they do come, let's say you get a number of cases in Limerick, then you just need to have very quick action to restrict movement into and out of the town and then get, get the outbreak uh, dealt with quickly. That usually takes a few days and then things can restart again. So in that way, you will get the economy maintained in most of the country. And perhaps from time to time, you might need to restrict movement in a particular area in order to make sure that a big outbreak doesn't build up. It's acting quickly, it's acting robustly, is the key to living with the constant threat of this virus for the foreseeable future. We're also hearing that a significant proportion of cases in Ireland are coming from the community. In that context, would you be worried about it? Well, there will continue to be people in the community with the virus. Uh, Even with a lockdown, you haven't uh, completely eradicated the virus. You've just, as I say, frozen it in place. So there will be new cases who come from the community. They'll come from play, from areas where transmission is most likely to happen. And we know now that it's particularly likely in health facilities. It's particularly likely in residential care for older people. It's also particularly likely in certain kinds of manufacturing or processing. For example, meat plants where uh, animals are, are killed and then cut up. These seem to be places where where the virus is particularly easily transmitted. And so that's what we have to be doing in the foreseeable future, is paying particular attention to the areas where we know the virus kind of likes to be uh, active and making certain that we reduce the risk there. Let's just deal with the social distance rule for for a second, uh, David. The WHO maintains a view that one metre is sufficient. Uh, distance between people and our own advisory body here has stuck to a two meter rule, um, whereas the advice from the US and, and US Centers for Disease Control uh, also two meters. As we try to return to normal with businesses and workplaces and, and healthcare settings uh, reopening on, on a much more of a, a, a normal footing, what's your view on the correct distance? Thanks. The issue of what distance people should keep from each other to reduce the risk that the virus is transmitted from person to person is clearly one that people debate about. And that's simply because there is no hard and fast rule here. So let me try to explain uh, the WHO's understanding and how this can be applied in other places. When a person has COVID in their body, the way in which it's transmitted is through the secretions that come up inside the lungs that are then projected out of the mouth in talking, singing, coughing, sneezing, any other activity that leads to a big outrush of breath from inside your lungs and then potentially can carry little droplets containing the virus out of someone's mouth and nose in front of them. Now, usually, when this kind of projection occurs with little droplets, most of those droplets stay inside one meter, but a few of them will travel on and very large majority of them stay inside two meters. Only a very small, small number go beyond that. So the first rule of thumb is 
maintain one meter distance to really reduce your risk of transmission, maintain two meters distance to really reduce it down near to zero. And that's why many countries have adopted the two meter distance rule. It's one that I personally feel comfortable with as well. Uh, the one meter distance rule is just simply a, a compromise between trying to reduce the risk whilst at the same time coping with the reality that in many settings, people just cannot maintain more than a one metre distance from each other. One of the areas, David, where the two metre rule is very, very difficult is in healthcare itself. Um, the chief executive of the HSE here, Paul Reid, has said a one metre rule in emergency departments and waiting rooms and, and other healthcare areas would create uh, more capacity in the health service. Yes, I've seen that and I saw the report um, and I understand it. And that's why the way in which the World Health Organization operates is trying really hard not to set hard and fast rules for any aspects of people's behavior, simply to set out the principles and then to offer recommendations that are related to risk. And we know that in certain areas, it's really difficult for people to maintain more than a one meter distance from each other in certain kinds of factories and markets, in retail, as well as in, in healthcare and in residential care for older people. So let's try to just break it up and think, well, what can you do? Number one, try to at least be clear on the one meter rule. What we don't want people to do is saying, well, if it's gonna be one meter, then it doesn't matter if we go closer than one meter. No, if you're going to use one meter, you've got to be really firm on it. Number two, try to do everything possible to protect the individuals who have to be in contact with many people, for example, in healthcare settings. Give them the right masks, the right protective equipment. Don't force them to be doing very large uh, periods on duty where they just get very hot and find it hard to keep the protection on. And number three, do everything possible to make sure that people who've got COVID are also protecting themselves. They should be wearing masks too, in order to protect people who are having to work with them. In the end, it has to be a, a judgment. You want to try to reduce risks to people as low as possible, whilst at the same time enabling them to do their work. I think the one thing that I would just say on this is that uh, some people say, well, if we're going to be, um, adopting a two-meter rule, it's going to have terrible impacts on the economy of our, our country or our businesses and so on. I can understand that, but at the same time, uh, I do think that everybody everywhere needs to be given the working conditions, if at all possible, where physical distancing can be maintained. Otherwise, what we're asking people to do is to put their lives at risk and their health at risk for the sake of, of the work they've got to do. And if, if, if it necessary, let's re-engineer workplaces so that they can be run in ways that enable people to maintain the distance. Uh, face masks are now recommended in Ireland in certain settings, David, uh, but you have said a badly worn face mask is risky in itself, haven't you? Yes. So on face masks, I want to be, again, trying to explain the principle so then people can adapt it in their own settings. You need to be able to have air coming through the mask, but the mask also needs to prevent droplets coming through the mask and so that if you've got COVID, you want to stop yourself infecting other people. You need to fit the mask properly over the face. It's no good having big gaps. 
And it's really no good if people wear their masks under their noses, as I see quite often. The mask is there for a purpose, and the purpose is to stop droplets getting out and infecting other people. And it, if it also, if you're in a highly exposed position, to stop you getting infected through droplets coming from somewhere else. You should not be continuously touching your mask with your hands if you possibly can avoid it, uh, because that in turn uh, creates a, a situation of poor hygiene, especially if you might have COVID and you're touching it and then you, your hand touches somebody else, that's not very good either. Uh, you should be trying to avoid a mask that is dripping wet uh, because that doesn't work so well. You need to change your mask quite often. So taken together, good fitting, worn properly, not too wet, not being touched all the time, then face protection can be very effective in reducing risks, particularly if you've got COVID, of you infecting somebody else, just in case you didn't know you had it. A last point, people should not assume that wearing a face mask gives them total protection. It's a sign that we're taking COVID seriously, uh, but we've got to do it properly. We've got to also respect physical distancing where possible. I hope that's clear. I think that this is probably going to be one of the most important new learnings that we're going to have as humanity uh, is how to wear face masks properly uh, and then how to go about life where we can communicate, we can send messages with our eyes and so on and not feel that wearing a mask somehow makes us weaker or less effective as people. It's, also, it's a sign of responsibility and it's something that many of us are going to have to learn to do. Why am I particularly fussed about it? I just have seen the statistics for the number of people working in highly exposed occupations, like security guards, or like um, uh, uh, people working on uh, cash tills, or, or people who are driving buses. You know, because they're providing services for the rest of us, us they're exposed. And that's why I believe we need to be disciplined, particularly on how we behave, how we protect ourselves from infecting, infecting them because often they don't have any choice but to work. And so for me, the whole issue of good etiquette and maintaining physical distancing, wearing face masks properly, will help to protect some of these people who are highly exposed because of their occupations. And do you think that hard and fast rule, David, uh, about wearing face masks in, in public settings should apply in Ireland? Well, every country has to make their own choice. I mean, ideally, it'd be great if there could be some general standard all countries adopt. And perhaps that's what will develop over time as we get all of us used to dealing with this. But there are very big variations between countries that are partly to do with different interpretations of the science and the risk and partly to do with a, a different perception on what people will actually do. I think over time, we'll get used to it and we'll realise that protecting our, our faces in public settings particularly when we're trying to, to enable others to avoid getting the disease will become the norm but I don't want to give any specific uh, a, a, um, judgment about an individual country uh, that's the kind of thing that we really do have to rely on the national officers Dr Holohan and his colleagues they will work it through and they will come out with a recommendation. There is virtually no prospect in Ireland of schools opening in any small way before September. Are we just creating a bigger mountain to climb after the summer, though? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very respectful of the decisions that have been made by countries that say they're going to be slow to reopen schools. 
firstly, we still don't fully understand uh, us in public health. What is the role of children in relation to COVID? We know that they can get infected with the virus, but they seem not to get disease. What we don't know is whether if a child has the virus, that child may pass it to the parents or grandparents at home, or may pass it to teachers. And so in the absence of a clear understanding of the role of children in spreading the disease, um, I can see why there's some care about schools. Secondly, it does look as though, as I said, children don't get unwell, but there are a few cases of, of, of reports. There are a few reports where children have become really quite unwell, a few of them, and they need to be investigated in more detail. Why are some countries moving to open schools quickly? Mostly because they see two challenges of keeping schools closed. One is children are just not getting educated, and that's very damaging for all children. They've lost periods in education. And secondly, parents who've got school-aged children uh, are not able to themselves work if they've got to look after their school-aged children at home. And so there's a really important social reason and an economic reason for trying to find ways to open schools. This is a, yet another of these difficult balances that governments are having to work through. And some countries are being very careful, saying... They want to be slower about opening schools. Other countries have moved quickly to open schools. But you may have seen reports in the news that at least one of those countries, South Korea, decided after finding cases of COVID among teachers to actually uh, um, um, slow down the reopening of schools. And whenever schools are being reopened, it's got to be done in a very gradual fashion, trying to establish new procedures in the school for physical distancing, also trying to make sure that there are procedures around how parents congregate, teachers congregate, and, and so doing it gently and carefully is the right way to go. Both in Ireland and internationally, we have our hopes pinned on the fast development of a vaccine. But you have said that one may never appear at all, haven't you? Well, I have. And, and so let me just stay from, from the beginning. Number one. I really would like there to be a safe and effective vaccine against COVID available for everybody in the world as quickly as possible. It would make a huge difference. It could mean that we really end up with everybody being defended against this virus, and that would enable us to go about our lives, um, obviously being respectful because we don't know that everybody's going to be vaccinated, but it would make a huge difference. But these, there are two very important words safe and effective. We, the science has been working on a vaccine against the virus HIV, which causes AIDS, for decades, and billions of dollars have been invested in trying to develop it. But a vaccine hasn't come yet, and this is another virus that's an RNA virus, quite similar to COVID, not the same family. And so I have to be careful and say to people, it's not always possible to develop a vaccine against a particular virus. And certainly I say to people, it takes time because it has to be safe. It's no good having a, a vaccine that is unsafe, for example, that leads to adverse reactions in a few people that might lead them to die. As soon as you've got that kind of thing happening, then that in turn raises the prospect that, that there will be some kind of movement against people being vaccinated. So making sure it's safe is really important. 
there was a, a problem with a vaccine against a, a disease called dengue uh, that seemed to cause adverse reactions in a few people. Even though it was a really promising vaccine, it just couldn't be used because of the side effects. The second word is effective. There's not much use in having a vaccine that creates antibodies in an indiv individual, but those antibodies don't actually protect against infection with COVID, or if they do protect, it's only a very mild protection. So making certain it's fully effective is important. Now, it will take, in my judgment, a minimum of 18 months for the necessary safety and efficacy tests to be done. If it can be raced ahead quicker, okay, that would be great, but please, no corners should be cut. And then when you've got the vaccine that, that works, you need to make sure that it's available in large enough quantity so that everybody who needs it can have it. I think it'd be really unfortunate if one or more vaccines were to develop, but they were only available for a small number of people in our world, let's say uh, 500 million, and we ended up with something like 7.3 billion people not being able to get the vaccine or having to be at the back of the queue, some of those from very poor countries. So for me, what really matters as well is there's enough vaccine for everybody and it's, it's administered to everybody and there isn't a, a, an unfair situation where many people from rich countries can get the vaccine and people from poor countries can't. So I reckon it'll be another year to get that total global administration of the vaccine organised and that would be with a lot of luck and a lot of political will. And that's why my timetable is two and a half years at the minimum, but it may take a lot longer. I hope that's clear to your listeners. And uh, you mentioned reversals in uh, schools in South Korea already and and indeed their their nightclubs and bars as well, where, you know, they had opened them and had to close again. Um, the government here is considering easing uh, restrictions in an accelerated uh, fashion in later phases if cases continue to reduce. Is this is this a wise strategy? I think every country realises that lockdown is an abnormal situation, very destructive to the economy, very destructive to people's livelihoods, not good for people's mental health, not good for the domestic situation. It, it's bad. And, and nobody wants lockdown to go on more than the absolute minimum. And so you need to be, if you're in government, releasing the lockdown and tracking where the virus is. And there will be situations where there are new outbreaks. It's kind of inevitable. And I think rather than see this as a reversal, this is what being COVID ready means, that you will have occasional outbreaks that crop up. Sadly, some of them may be in places where older people receive um, residential care. Some of them may be in food factories and meat plants. Some of them may be in ships. Uh, um, and that will happen. And so I want to say being COVID ready means getting the lockdown ended, having defences in place in every community so you can pick up outbreaks quickly, focusing especially on the high-risk locations, and then having the ability, if necessary, to stop movements in particular places if you've got to deal with an outbreak that's built up and it's causing uh, severe problems. And it will, be, it will be the way of the future, just as in South Korea, they found that there was transmission occurring in nightclubs. So temporarily they've closed the nightclubs, particularly the karaoke bars. They may have to do some modification to what happens in the nightclubs. 
then they'll be able to be able to reopen them and people will be able to get on with their lives again. It'll be transient, it'll be local, it'll be highly, highly focused. That ca capacity to restrict movement in certain locations will be necessary as part of living with the virus as a constant threat. What's your view on the issue of imposing quarantines between Ireland and, and other countries? What will happen in the future is that governments will look at what's happening in countries and if they see that there is some kind of similar attention to COVID, similar control of the threat uh, with um, interruption of transmission through case finding and contact tracing and then quick outbreak suppression, and if they say, for example, that Ireland's got a similar approach to Greece and there is dialogue between the two countries on what are the conditions under which people will be able to move between the two countries, then I can see what one calls travel bubbles emerging between such countries, which will enable people, for example, to take holidays or to do business between countries. I don't think it will be based on contiguous geography. It will be based on assessment of whether or not the receiving country has the same strategy as Ireland has, and that will then become the basis for resumption of, of movement. And I think it'll be quite quick. The Dominic Cummings breach of lockdown is clearly now in the, the political sphere. But one of the things that he said yesterday in his press conference was that he and his family went on a, on a, a round trip to a local uh, beauty spot uh, to check his eyesight. Are you aware of a link between coronavirus and, and eye health or, or people's eyesight? That's something that I've not personally studied. And so I don't want to comment on that specific statement, but I would like to make one general comment on what this situation means for governments and those who represent governments. See, people are being asked to do an enormous amount to try to help societies get on top of and ahead of this virus. Uh, they're making sacrifices to their lives. Everybody is. And what this means is there has to be an awful lot of trust between people and those in authority. And, you know, I watch the way in which different governments, government spokespeople, whether they are presidents or prime ministers or ministers or representatives, particularly the, the health people, I watch the way in which they are maintaining communication with people. And when there's a regular, open, honest communication between representatives of government and people, then the relationship is good and people are prepared to go along with the government and say, okay, you're leveling with us and we'll trust you and we'll work with you. When there's any element of mistrust that builds into that relationship, life gets so much harder, especially when that mistrust is associated with particular political actors. Now, I don't know anything really about the details of the situation in the UK that you just described, but what I would like to say is that I think there's an, a, a great deal to, to be gained if governments are prepared to be transparent, and to do everything possible to gain and retain and maintain the trust of their people in moving through this. It's, it's, we've got quite a long haul ahead of us and trust really matters. David, thanks very much. My thanks to Suzanne Brennan who produced today's podcast and thanks for listening. 
Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back tomorrow.